Again, if you, I have a, a question right from the beginning. Did you write your story in that weaving community project? Could you just give it to me at the end, or you can just leave it on the chair and I'll pick them up. But don't forget, yes. You can't put your name on it, but you don't have to. That's your choice. Yep. I'm sorry. There's three different ones, and they were just randomly placed on the chairs. Yeah. Any other questions before we begin? All righty. So, as usual, we're going to start talking to one another, and the question for this time is, how would you describe a gentleman today? You know, what does he look like, or what does he do? Just go nuts. Describe a gentleman with each other, and then we're going to come back to that. All righty. I'm sure you described a wonderful man. You can introduce him to me. I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. Before we start, I'll just say a quick prayer, and I'm going to say it in Spanish because I just feel like speaking Spanish today, and this is the only chance I get. Padre Santo, gracias por esta noche por la oportunidad de reunirnos en tu nombre porque es tu espíritu quien nos trae y es tu espíritu quien nos nos alimenta y nos llena de paz te pido que nos hables Señor que toques nuestros corazones en el nombre de tu Hijo Jesús Amén Great Alright, I'm going to give you the usual recap that I do before uh, I start with just highlights from previous classes and this probably sounds a bit redundant to some of you, but recaps are great because they help us bring things to the surface of, of our brain and they, they just get us going and they just get, get us thinking in the right direction. So we already spent some time with Naomi. We went down with her in her suffering and then we came back up as we learned from Ruth's example and her hesed. We learned from these two women about life and about choices in the midst of despair. And today we're going to learn about life and choices but from someone that was in a completely different circumstance than, um, circumstances than those that Ruth and Naomi found themselves in. And that's Boaz, the wealthy, well-established, and highly respected Boaz. It's his turn. He's been so patient. Remember, um, last class we said that we were going to watch a movie, right? And we were going to watch three scenes, and we only got to see one, the first one which took place on the way to Bethlehem. In this scene, we got to know Ruth, but we did it through her interactions with Naomi, right? Everything we were able to grasp from her was in response to, I mean, was her in response to Naomi's uh, reaction or her negativity or her hopelessness. Now, in this scene today, we're going to get to know Boaz, and we're going to do that through his interactions with Ruth. And those interactions happen in the next two scenes in the grain fields. Everything okay, Doug? No? Good? 
Those interactions happen in the next two scenes, in the grain fields and in the threshing floor. So are you ready? Are you ready? Yes, because I am. If you want to open your Bibles in chapter 2, this chapter, I'll wait for you. It's there. All right, chapter 2 begins with an introduction to Boaz. And it is, it is a very random introduction because if you read the whole thing, it, it makes no sense. It doesn't fall within the, the story. Did you have a question? No? No. All right. So the cha- chapter 2 starts like this. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. This is like an FYI, because that's the only thing the author says he wants us to know, he or she wants us to know, hey, there's a man coming in the picture, he's a great man. And these two pieces of information will be very, very helpful to us as we, as we study the passage. One is that Boaz was related to Naomi through her deceased husband. That's, that's very important. Number two, he was also a man of standing. And the adjective that is used here in the Hebrew is hayil. This word hayil is very similar to the word chesed because both are big words. And, and it's really, it's not that easy to translate them because it doesn't matter how, what word you use. You're not going to fully grasp the meaning. And uh, in, in fact, every translation that I checked for, for this passage, for this line, every single one of them had a very unique description, description for, for Boaz. The King James Version said that he was a mighty man of wealth. The English Standard Version said a worthy man. The New Living Translation said a wealthy and influential man. And the Holman Christian Standard Bible said a prominent man of noble character. And all of them, they are somewhat different, but you know what? They, they are all correct because of what I just said about this word. When we study the word chayil, in the, in the Old Testament, we know that there's close to 243 references to this word. And in most instances, the word was used to describe a, like a hero-like attribute, like strength or honor or excellence or moral worth, you name it. And in many of those times, many, many of those times, the word was used to describe God himself. So just imagine for to be described as a hayil was a pretty big deal. Pretty, pretty big deal. Now, what exactly gave him this title? We know that we're about to find out through his interactions with Ruth what he did. But before we do that, I just want to grab my context tool and tell you a little something about the, the culture back then. We already talked about this society and how it was a patriarchal society. Right? Remember that? Well, in a patriarchal society, there were several things that gave men this title, this, this high standing, a few of them. But one of the most important ones, one of the top, like in the top three, was a man's ability to secure offspring so that the family name wouldn't disappear. We can already talked about this before. 
So for those of you who imagined Boaz as a handsome bachelor, I am so afraid to burst her bubble. Uh, that was probably not true. That was probably not the case because a man without sons would, have been, would, would not have been admired like Boaz was admired. He would have been disgraced or pitied. So this is a great insight because now we know that women weren't the only ones that were judged based on their ability to have kids or lack thereof. Men lived under that same pressure. Now, the minor advantage that men had, and by minor, I mean humongous, <laughs> is that if a man's wife um, couldn't have children, he could just simply try with another woman and another wife and another one and another one until the problem was fixed. Now a woman cannot do that. So we don't know the exact circumstances of Boaz's life, but here are some possible scenarios for who he was in life, his stage in life. He was either married to one wife, he was possibly married to several wives, that's a possibility. Maybe he was a widow, that's also a possibility, but he most certainly would have had kids of his own already because that's what gave men that high standing, that awesome respect from the society. So enough about context. Let's look at the scene taking place in the grain fields. It begins with Ruth asking permission to go to the fields and glean some grains. We find that in verse 2 when she says to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now, that's a funny way of saying it. Why should we go behind someone and not just with them or on her own? Because in the Israelite communities, foreigners were allowed to glean in someone else's field as long as they did it after the owner's workers had done it first. It was like a leftover thing. And that is, that's exactly what the law said. We can read it in, in Leviticus 19. We find this uh, commandment. In Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave, leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Now, see how the law comes alive in, in such precious ways when we put it in context to real-life situations. When we read the law, it's just so boring. But when we see it being exercised, it kind of it comes alive, like right here. And I want us to treasure this moment because very seldom will you find the book of Leviticus being interesting at all. <laughs> so let's enjoy it. We can imagine Ruth, she's going behind the workers, and she's exercising the Jewish law, this Moabite. So Ruth goes to the field, she's gleaning, and that morning, just like any other morning, Boaz goes to his field to see how things are going, because he was an honorable man. He, he was all about excellence. I'm sure he checked his field every morning. So he gets there, and he quickly notices that there is a stranger in his fields. So he asked the question to his workers, to whom does, 
To whom does this woman belong? And here we go again with the patriarchal thing. He didn't say who was she or what's her name. No. To whom does this woman belong? I already talked enough about that, so I'll just keep going. But you know how that ticks me. <coughs> and the workers responded, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. And that said it all. Everybody was talking about them. That's all the information Boaz needed to know. Oh, she isn't any foreigner. She's the Moabite. People knew who she was. People knew she was on her own and that she belonged to no one. She was, um, she was extremely vulnerable, and Boaz knew that. Now, how is he going to respond? There's a new stranger, there's a new foreigner, an immigrant, and she is helpless and voiceless and, voiceless and vulnerable. What is he going to do? Is he going to respect her, or is he going to abuse her? Is he going to protect her? Or is he, is he going to see her with lust? Let's look at his response in verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting. And follow along after the women. Follow along, not after or behind. I have told the men not to lay hands on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. He's protecting Ruth. So let me just ruin the Cinderella story for you. There's no Romans going on. At least not at this point. There's no Romans going on. Boaz is protecting Ruth like a father would protect a daughter. All throughout the story, Boaz refers to Ruth as my daughter. If he had never had children before, it would have been weird for him to say my daughter. Now he says, my daughter, I have told the man not to lay hand on you. This man is in protection mode. This Chayil is protecting this vulnerable woman. He's definitely a Chayil, but by helping and protecting Ruth, he's also breaking the law. Why is that? Yes, Leviticus says that you can let them glean after your workers, and that's exactly what was happening, but now he was inviting Ruth to glean with her workers. And not only that, remember our law from last class. In Deuteronomy, where it says, you shall not protect the Moabites. You shall not seek their well-being. You shall not even be friends with them. That was part of the law. And Boaz is breaking it. And breaking the law was a pretty big deal in the Jewish world. It separated you from God. It separated you from the community. And it got you in big, big trouble with the priests, which were the authority. Boaz chooses to go above and beyond to protect Ruth. And she cannot believe it. She cannot believe her eyes. And she needs to know why she has found so much favor. She knows that uh, it's, this behavior is it's just not normal. What this man is doing for her is not even expected. It's not, it's not the norm. Boaz is going above and beyond. So she asks him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me? Me, a foreigner. It's in your Bible. Me, the immigrant. Why? 
By now we know that Ruth didn't have problems of self-esteem. We know that she was brave. But she was not dumb. She was a realistic woman. She knew her situation. So Boaz responds to her, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law. Remember all that chesed? He knew that. I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you you have done may you be richly rewarded by the lord the god of israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge see when we do hesed it may feel like no one notices especially when you're a mom i've heard that a lot right donna <laughs> you're like going yes <laughs> but god does notice and the people of god most of the time they notice too Someone is always watching us, whether we like it or not. So then Ruth smiles. She's like, oh, yeah, I did that. So she goes back to the fields to keep working. And I can almost imagine her smiling big, like leaning and taking all this grain and thinking, oh, my God, that really happened to me. That's wonderful. And she's working because that first encounter happened in the morning. And then by noon, by noon, Boaz calls her out again. She calls her out from the field. And she says, and, and he invites her to eat with him and his workers. He says, come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When Ruth sat down with the harvesters, he offered some roasted grain. He offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. Now, what, what is going on? Not only did Boaz let her glean the people even invited her to the table to eat with them and have as much as she wanted to that is unheard of that kind of behavior would have definitely made it the local news you know like extra extra a well-respected israelite invites a moabite to his table completely unheard of completely quote-unquote wrong that was against the law but boaz didn't care Now, let's forget about Boaz and Ruth just for a moment. And let's try to imagine the rest of the workers witnessing this moment. You know, they must have been looking at Boaz like, are you out of your mind? You're going to get in trouble for this. This is a foreigner. This is a woman. What is she doing here? Maybe they were offended. Or maybe they weren't. But what do you think you would have done? And let's think of a a more modern example. What if, let us think about, you know, us being in a, in a fancy restaurant with our family. And then all of a sudden, a homeless person walks in. And this homeless person is, is stinky and, and dirty and maybe a little bit stoned, looking funky. And then this homeless person approaches your table and sits down. And, and in my case, I would look at my dad and like, Dad, what are we going to do? And then my dad says, oh, it's okay. Let her stay. Let him stay. It, you know, have her food. I don't know how I would respond. I want, now that I force myself to think about that, I would be so conscious. And I'd be like, absolutely. But I would probably think, what's going on? What, do you, what would you have done? Then Ruth goes home. And when Naomi hears the news, she cannot believe it. 
What? You went to Boaz's field? O-M-G. That's, she did say that. With other, you know, in Hebrew, oh my Lord. O-M-G, the Lord bless him. She says in verse 20, he has not stopped showing his kindness, chesed, to the living and the dead. That man is her close relative. He's one of her kinsmen redeemers. Did you do your homework? What is a kinsman redeemer? Anyone? Just say it. Someone who's related that rescues or saves a person in trouble. Perfect. That is a beautiful definition. You know, a male relative. Absolutely. The Hebrew term is goel. And I don't know if you came across this. But it is a legal term. And it's for one, as Donna said, that has an obligation to redeem a relative in serious difficulty. And this redeemer needs to be a man. Now, there were, very many, there, there were many different situations when a kinsman redeemer had the duty to step in and redeem a relative. I don't know if you came across all of them, but just to give you an, an example, one of them was in the case of murder, if someone was killed, the kinsman redeemer was the one responsible to try to, you know, seek justice for the family and for the, for the person that had been killed. That's one way of redeeming someone. Another one was, if a family member was found in such debt that he or she had to sell themselves uh, into slavery, the kinsman redeemer would pay for, the redeem, for this person to give them freedom. That was another way of redeeming someone. Now a third one, if family property was mortgaged in one way or another, you know, if it was taken away or sold, the kinsman redeemer would regain it, and by that we mean we, he would buy it for the family. That's a third way. And a fourth one is, if a man died without having sons, his brother would marry the widow to keep the family line. And that's what is called the levirate marriage, because levir is um, brother-in-law in Hebrew. Now, the last two options directly affected Naomi's situation, right? Our story. Elimelech had died without having sons, which means his property, if he still had any, because remember, he left the place to go to, Bethel, to Moab. It means his property would have not been passed down to anyone, and his name would have also disappeared. That's, that's his situation. Even though he's dead, in the Hebrew mind, you still think about the dead ones as if they were still alive. Now, these two were the greatest concerns in the Jew- Jewish world continuing the family line and keeping the land because the land was sacred to this day the land is sacred now look at how Boaz just by virtue of who he was he automatically represented hope for the poor and for the marginalized he still hasn't done anything I mean he's been kind to Ruth but just by virtue of who he was, where he was born, or when he was born, or in which family, he was automatically privileged, and he was hope for someone else. And I know we've been learning so much about Ruth and Naomi, but today, as in all this week, as I was studying Boaz and his attitude, I think I can relate to him so much. Because I, too, walk around with so much privilege. I can relate to Naomi and Ruth because I'm a woman. 
I can relate to them because I'm also an immigrant. But even though I'm an immigrant, I also walk around with a lot of privilege because there are other immigrants that have it way harder than I do. I walk around with God's favor just like each one of you. And so wherever we go, we represent hope. What do we do with it? Now, Naomi knows that Boaz is her hope, but she needs to think of uh, of a way on how to get him to respond as the kinsman redeemer because she had said she is one of our kinsman redeemers. So the hamster in her head starts going and starts going fast, fast, fast. And then after spending a few days or months or weeks, we don't know how long, she's been thinking of a perfect plan and then she comes up with one and she shares it with Ruth. And it's a great plan, I guess. She says, My daughter, shouldn't I find security for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz a relative? She's building a case. (laughs) Haven't you been working with his female servants? Look, this evening he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash yourself, put on some perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Now go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man see you. Don't let him know where you are. Stay there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain what you should do. He will explain to you what you should do. I will do everything you say, she says. She said, wait for him. Now the narrator keeps going and he says, So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had instructed her. After Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley. Then she went in, she went in secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight... Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. Mm, This was a man of high standing. Imagine, I don't know, we don't know exactly what happened, but he says, he looks at her and he says, who are you? And she says, I am Ruth, your slave. And at this point, Ruth is supposed to shush and wait for Boaz to say something. That's the instruction. And does she wait? No. She opens her big mouth, and instead of waiting for his instructions, she gives the instructions to him. Spread your cloak over me, for you are a family redeemer. Do you know what she's doing? First of all, she's not being obedient to her mother-in-law. Second of all, she's telling this well-respected, honorable Israelite man what to do. But since now we know the obligations of a kinsman redeemer, we can conclude that really what she was doing is that she was legally binding him to marry her. Say what? (laughs) Once again, nothing in this story falls under the norm, right? A woman proposing to a man 
That sounds funny even now. That sounds weird even now, doesn't it? Extra, extra. A woman proposed to a man. A poor woman proposed to a rich man. Let's crush that. A Moabite proposed to an Israelite. Ruth is crazy. She's brave. Now, the whole scene is very difficult to understand. We have that part. But the whole, you know, the whole night and the, all the instructions, that's, that's hard for us to understand. We, you know, a lot of questions come to mind. Was Naomi, you know, was her plan to serve Ruth to, Bo- to Boaz in like a silver platter? Or, or was Ruth offering herself to Boaz? Was she seducing him so that he would accept the deal? So many questions that are left unanswered. And you know what? This, this mysterious passage makes me so happy because it makes us aware of how far removed we are from the times when this, this event took place. If passages like this force us to study, to think outside of our little box, to remove ourselves from our Western mindset or modern mindset. It forces us to ask questions and to ask them to God. We don't always do that. We are very good at jumping to conclusions and assuming things. And let me tell you something, you know, about a, a phenomenon. I call it a phenomenon that has been true to hum- humanity for thousands of years. We, the humankind, we tend to get so obsessed with what we don't know that we forget to pay attention to the information we do have. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to pay attention to the things we do know, not the ones we do not know. One of those things we do know is Boaz's response to her. He gets up. She responds. She gives him some instructions. And then he says, May the Lord bless you, my daughter. He's still addressing her as my daughter. He's not saying, hey, honey. It's good to see you at night. The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you have shown earlier. Because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. So it's official. Boaz is not young. Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say. Since all the people in town know that you are a woman of noble character. Do you know what word is used there? Chayil. Boaz is calling Ruth a chayil. Interesting. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, a goel. But there is a redeemer closer than I. Stay here tonight and in the morning if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. Again, what kind of response is that? She just wore her best clothes and her best perfume and he was a little drunk. He He was. He had been drinking a lot. I don't know if he was drunk, but he had been drinking. Let's just leave it there. 
First, the author wants us to know that there's going to be perfume and alcohol involved and a woman is going to sneak into a man's room at night and he's, she's going to cover his feet and whatnot. But now, now we have a response that says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. There's, there's just nothing sexy about that response. So what happened that night? Maybe, maybe what we thought happened is not exactly what happened. We don't know. There's a lot of ambiguity all over the place, and we will, we will probably never know those details. However, what we do know is that at the end of the story, Boaz and Ruth end up getting married, and they do have a baby. So, go figure. Did they eventually fall in love? Maybe. Maybe not. One thing we need to know and to understand, or at least try to understand, because this is something that's difficult for us on this side of the world, is that to this day, in a traditional patriarchal Middle Eastern family or group, marriage is first and foremost a matter of security. A marriage strengthens a family name or their reputation. A marriage secures a decent life for a daughter. Now, if there's love involved, the great news. If there isn't, you know, well, at least they are doing what the culture expects them to do, and there might be some joy in that. We want to hope for the best. So let us keep dissecting, dissecting Boaz's response. Because in his words, we find something that's incredibly intriguing. Right after he calls her my daughter, he goes on to say, This chesed, this kindness, is greater than that which you showed earlier. Now, how can this be chesed? How can this event, this mysterious funny, funky, fishy, whatever adjective you want to use. How can this be chesed? And how can it be greater than all she has done for Naomi? She left her country. She left her gods. She left her customs. She came to live as a foreigner. And what she was doing was greater. I thought Ruth was trying to secure her future. I thought that finally she was thinking about herself. She's a great girl. She's wonderful. She's a chayil. She's a woman of chesed. But she's allowed to think about her future. That's what I'm thinking. But I, I want to I pause and I want to revisit one of our tools, our word study tool, and, and go slowly through the meaning of goel. We know that the situations that apply to the story, again, for, were the, the bottom two ones, Right? The problem for Naomi was that her husband was gone and her sons. So if they had any land, anyone could take it. And the name of the family was going to disappear. So there's two ways in which Boaz can help. Now, who was the person whose name was going to disappear? It wasn't Naomi's. It was Elimelech's. He's, he's the person. Now, if Boaz had to marry the widow, remember the, the rule delivered marriage? If a man dies, the kinsman redeemer needs to marry the widow of that man. Who is the widow of the man that died? It's Naomi. And not Ruth. This is where the story gets incredibly tricky, so please try to follow me. 
So far, nothing in this story has followed normal conventions, as we already saw, and this is not the exception. Do you want to know what Ruth was doing that night? Yes, she was given instructions to the well-respected, highly honorable, noble man, Boaz. And yes, she was asking him to marry her. But in that question and in those intentions, she wasn't just thinking about her future. She was thinking about the burden that Naomi was carrying, and she was even thinking about Elimelech. She knew that the man needed a son to keep the family name going, a son that could work the land if there was any. Now, the problem is that Naomi was old and she couldn't be children anymore. And Ruth, with her bright and courageous soul and wonderful attitude, she decides not to follow Naomi's plan. She didn't follow the plan. She was supposed to wait and just see what Whatever answer, whatever solution Boaz came up with, she doesn't wait because that plan, when Naomi thinks it, she's thinking about Ruth. She wants the best for Ruth. But Ruth wants the best for Naomi. So she breaks the rules again. She instructs Boaz to marry her because she is going to take the place of Naomi and bear a child for her so that Elimelech's name could go on. In other words, she is stepping in as surrogate mother for Naomi. This child will be Naomi's child and he will keep Elimelech's name going. Now you may think, Gabby, you're out of your mind. You're making that up. And I am not. I am not. I have so many proofs. I'm also building a case here right before you. I have very tangible proof for you. And you may want to go to the last chapter in the book of Ruth. When Boaz goes to the and when it's finally decided that, yes, he will be the one fulfilling the duty of a kinsman redeemer. If you go to chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. That's when he announces, announces to the elders and to all the people in the city what he's about to do. He says, today you are witnesses that I have bought for Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Malon's widow. She's somehow related to the family. I have acquired her as my wife in order to maintain the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from the family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. In his role as a kinsman redeemer in two ways, the restoration of land and the levered marriage in a very unconventional way. And this was Ruth's idea. Now, if this, is, if this isn't enough proof for you, let's keep reading. Go down to verses 14 through 16. And we read that some women were talking to Naomi. And they said, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. 
May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi put him in her lap and cared for him. And the women, women living there said, Naomi has a son. I told you I wasn't making it up. The story finally comes full circle for Naomi, who is usually forgotten by the time we get to the last chapter. At the end of the story, Naomi gets back her hope, her future, and even a child. Now, I'm sure she always mourned the loss of her older children. Of course she did. The two sons and the, and the husband. But this isn't a happily ever after story. Remember, this is real life. And the good news about real life is that no matter how difficult our circumstances may be, or how, how horrible we may imagine them, in real life, God never abandons us. Ever. And with God, there's always restoration. It might not look exactly the way we envisioned it, but with God, there is always restoration. Now, why, what can we say about Boaz? His, his actions said, said it all. This man had a reputation and a name to keep. He was a man of standing, and he was respected by the society because he followed the rules. He was a good man. But he did not hold on to that as something to be used to his own advantage. Does that sound familiar? Maybe from Philippians too. He did not hold on to that as something to be used to his own advantage. He made use of his wealth and his influence so that someone else, the foreigner, the poor, the no one, so that someone else could have a future and a hope, even if it meant breaking the law. This man was a Hayil man, and his life was a life of chesed. This man showed us the measure of a true gentleman. And my question is, how close or how far removed is Boaz's example to what we consider a gentleman today? Today in the 21st century. It's a good thing to think about. So I'm going to leave you with that, and now we're going to step into the discussion time with Bob. Thank you, Bob. And then I'll be back. Thank you, Gabby. I don't know about you guys, but I'm continually learning more and more and more from the book of Ruth. I I, I honestly can't remember a time when uh, there was so much gleaned by me from this uh, little book. And so thank you, Gabby. And as we begin our turn to discuss and to learn from each other. Let's start with going back to what we just heard. What stood out uh, for you? What was important to you? What did you learn? And as you do that, think about um, we'll have a sharing time from the groups and we'll again record it on the whiteboard. Uh, Select someone in your group who might be uh, a spokesperson 
to share at that time. That'll be in a little while. So we got about five minutes to talk about what uh, struck you, what was important to you about what Gabby just shared. Take some time now and share an example of a tradition from a foreign culture that is difficult for you to understand. So from from our story and this scene in the book of Ruth, we saw a lot of things that were you know, specific to the culture that are different than all, all cultures. Um, so share something. Uh, in that vein that is uh, from a different culture, but it's difficult for you to understand. And we'll take about uh, 10 minutes for this so you have time. Make sure everybody gets a chance to share. Okay, about one more minute. Kind of try and wrap up your group uh, discussion in one minute. Okay, let's move on to uh, our third question. So, as we saw in the book of Ruth and, and tonight, how we had the culture of the Moab, Moab culture coming together with the culture of the Israelites, two different, very, very different cultures, and yet God was able to kind of merge those two cultures and peoples uh, together, you know, for his plan and for for good. So the third question is a question uh, a bit more um, personal to you and I. How might God want you or I to be willing to explore the possibility that he can work in and through people or cultures whose traditions and ways are different from what you and I uh, know or are used to. So that was a long question, but let me break it down. Um, as in the book of Ruth, how do you think God is, will, is willing for you to explore how he can work through you, even though there's some differences in you and differences in others for his good. Does that make sense? It kind of makes it a little more simple. All right. About 10 minutes. And again, uh, select someone to speak for your group when we uh, are finished. Okay, about one more minute to wrap up your discussion, and then we'll have a time of sharing. And if uh, and if your group would like to share, just kind of put your hand up and let me uh, note you so I don't forget you. Wow. I think this is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. Fun for me. And I think fun for the rest of you. So... Um, 
let's start over here. Sharing on uh, what God would do, even though the cultures are different. Um, to summarize what we came up with the story with the story that I had in mind is just recognizing that with the differences that we can have in various cultures that you can offer grace um, in understanding that maybe what you're seeing is not the ultimate motivation for why something is taking place. And can I give the example? The example that I um, gave was it, I, I mentioned I like to watch old movies, and this was a particular old movie where it was about the war, and there was um, a gentleman who was an American citizen working in Germany, had a business, and he was approached by the American government asking, he says, you know, you're in a really good position to get some information for us and uh, but in order to do that he had to basically side with the nazis and so in doing so um he, he was not an anti-semite in any way he you know had jewish friends and so in this one particular scene he's in a restaurant with his nazi friends and he's trying to get information and this jewish friend of his walks into the restaurant and uh, recognized him and approached him because they were close friends and in doing so the american now with this role of spy basically um, spoke very rudely very abruptly to him basically had to set the example that you know he's with the Nazis and how dare you da 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 and this Jewish individual recognizing that this man was a, a good friend of his he walked away from that situation saying to himself you know there's something going on here there's something happening this is not who this man really is I know his heart I know how he actually feels there's something I don't know and he basically offered him grace and was able to walk away and not dismiss him from his life in that respect so I, I just thought that was a great example <laughs> it is talk about uh, differences in cultures and having uh, a belief that God would work things out for good so you guys ready okay. hi um, I have a personal example. My um, children, uh, as a single woman, I adopted two children from China, and their standard of adoption process is very different than ours. In China, there's no, it's against the law to give up your children, and in, of course, America, it isn't. Um, my to-be 14-year-old, She'll turn 14 in a couple of days, and she's very innocent. Oh, I'm sorry. She's very innocent. I don't want to blast you. She said to me, Mommy, um, when is my real birthday? Because she knows she's, the laws are different. And I just said, well, that's, I think they looked at you, <laughs> and they said, you are one day old, and this must be your birthday. But anyway, it was fascinating discussion that she... You know, maybe I'm 15 or 16. So um, that's a culture that's very different than ours. And then the, the third question, um, you know, when Jesus, when the disciples asked Jesus, what, which um, commandment is the most important yes. one? He said to love your Lord God with all your 
heart, mind, soul, strength. And then the other is to love everyone or to love some people as yourself. I'm not quoting the Bible very well. And I've tried to raise my girls that way. I think I've had to change over the years um, in our in their lives, the gay and lesbian and transgender and all those things are very aware in the high school. Um, and my explanation to them is God told us to love everyone. And then Joan quoted someone from Facebook, which she wants me to, sh- I mean, I said, I'll take, let her take it away. And she said, God's job is to set the rules. Jesus is to judge and my job is to love people. Great. Thank you. Boy, that's excellent. Love this sharing. You guys ready? Jesus is to judge. And um, my job is to love people. Which I'd rather quote Jesus's words than Facebook, but you know the commandments. <laughs> it's there. Great, thank you. Okay. Okay. Is it okay we give examples from two different? Yes. Uh, quite okay. Okay, I'm going to do the third one. Uh, example was uh, going to. Um, um, in a different culture, another church setting, uh, and for instance, the Pentecostal church um, in Russia, is they share prayer requests in a large group like this, then everyone prays all at once. And we were told before we were involved in this, be careful. It's not wrong. It's different because God is able to, dis- to, to hear and decipher everything everyone is saying. That's a great one. And Sandy's going to give another one. Is that okay? Okay. Okay. Tag team. Sorry, that was loud. Um, So something that I shared as an example of a tradition that's from a foreign culture, um, in Abe's culture, (laughs) it's a, huh? Oh, okay. See, I'm loud, so I think. Okay. So in Abe's culture, um, there's, at least from my context of his family, they usually serve, if you would have a meal with them, they put all the food on the table, but no one ever sits down together to eat the meal. And that I don't get. Yeah. So that was something that was different. But to tie them all together, we kind of came to the same conclusion as the other group. That love ties everything together and that that, you know, ultimately our love for Christ is what brings us together. Um, Because also we thought of missionaries, how it used to be that we tried to impose our culture in another culture thinking that that was sharing Christ. But now it's about the love of Christ and the gospel. But you know, embracing that culture rather than trying to change their culture. Thank you very much. Gabby, come and wrap it up for us. 
Thank you very much oh. for your. Um, that was great. Sharing. I wish we could have just kept going till ten. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Thank you, Donna, once again. So so far, we've seen all three characters already, and we've learned from all of them, right? Each one has had something very, very valuable uh, to offer, to add to the conversation, to our growth and learning. Now, when we look at this from Naomi's perspective, which is kind of like how I ended this class, from, from her perspective or her angle, we see that redemption for her didn't come just through Ruth's choice or choices. It also, you know, redemption didn't come just from Boaz's choices either. For God's plan to work out, both the man and the woman are needed. So the book of Ruth isn't just about Ruth, and it isn't just about Naomi, and it isn't just about Boaz. The book of Ruth is about God, and God's desire for men and women to take ownership of the gifts and the responsibilities that we've been given because we're all image bearers. The book of Ruth is um, about God's desire for, for men and women to work together and to partner up in, in a blessed alliance where both parts are foundational to God's plan. A blessed alliance where we help one another, we support one another, and we do everything together but because if one of us fails, we all fail. But if one of us succeeds, all of us succeed. So that was a big takeaway, at least for me. Um, we have one more class, and then that's it. Boom. But we have homework for the last class, and this time is going to be simple. Now, those of you that were able to write down a, a short story or an answer to the community weaving project can you please give it to me don't forget raise your hand who did it Woo. okay good thank you those of you that haven't done it um please try it doesn't have to be a full story um if it's chinese maybe we can try in english <laughs> uh sorry there's a conversation behind that and um and the homework is going to be to read Matthew 1 from verses 1 through 17. So that's going to be quick. And that's it for tonight. It was great to be with you. Thank you so much for engaging in conversation. That's, to me, that's always the highlight of the night. So thank you so much and see you next week. Bye.